0: Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And in this week's episode, we welcome Cynthia Covey Howler, who is the daughter of Stephen R. Covey. And we're here to talk about her latest book, which is Live Life and Crescendo, Your Most Important Work is Always Ahead of You. And like I said a few times during the interview, when I first saw the title of this book, I was excited, but also I was a little biased towards thinking... know this may not be for someone at my stage of life who uh, if you're watching on video i've got my picture of my three boys behind me eight six and two uh i'm in my 40s and thinking that's probably not for me yet and after talking to Cynthia it's so clear that this book is for anybody i even mentioned how some of these principles that we're talking about could be impactful for my young kids or if i was teaching i'd want to give this to my kids and so uh, this conversation was fascinating. It, we talk about, you know, four specific stages that she addresses in her book, which are really neat. And so I would encourage you to listen for those. I would encourage you to listen for, we dive deep on a couple of the, the different stages in life. One of those is, uh, thinking about the second half of life. And that's something that I you know was thinking about with my father or my parents. Um, and then another one is just thinking through when life gets really tough. What do you do in those challenging moments and how do you snap out of them? Because we've all been there and we all know people who are there right now. And so this is such an awesome conversation. We learned so much uh, more about uh, the founder of this, you know, the creator of seven habits, creator Franklin Covey, Stephen Covey. It just was, it was awesome. It was a really, really rich conversation, really insightful conversation and it's one that I walked away more inspired and I walked away with clear examples of how to be a better person, parent, uh, and educator. So enjoy it. I had a lot of fun and I think you will too. As always, uh, if you if you're a subscriber, thank you for subscribing. If you aren't, please hit the subscribe button. We need all the support we can get as well as we're listening to this, take notes for yourself. And if you think there's someone in your life that really needs to hear Our guest's message, please share it with them because that's a way to really love and serve people around you. So, again, thanks for listening. Enjoy this uh, conversation. I really had a lot of fun. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much for making time to be here with us today. I'm
1: so excited to be on your show, Dustin. Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I am ecstatic to talk to you about our topic today. So, as you know, we start with the same question for everyone Who are you and what do you love about what you do?
1: Okay. Um, my name is Cynthia Covey Haller. I'm the oldest of nine children to Stephen and Sandra Covey. And as I'm, I'm called the mother hand, Dustin, I'm the <laughs> oldest of nine. People have to get their approval through me if they bring new people into the family. Um, I just since my parents have both passed, I just have moved right into that role. And I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I'm also a grandmother um, a mom of six kids, a grandma, and now I can say I'm a first time author. So I just written this, this is the first time I've written a book by myself. I've contributed to others, but that's a great thing. That's a new thing. I can say I'm an author now.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. And I'm really excited to know that this book is out and uh, ready for people to buy right away. Before we dive into it, uh, I was thinking, you know, when we had a couple of, you know, your other siblings on, I asked each of them, what is it like growing up as a child of Stephen Covey?
1: (laughs) It was great. I mean, we didn't know any different. (laughs) (laughs) We we had, um, our dad was so much fun. He was so spontaneous. My mom would get everyone to sleep. And sometimes if he was out of town, he got home at 9.30 or 10 at night and we've got school the next day, he'd just run into our rooms. And I just got off the plane. Let's go to 7-Eleven. Let's go get Slurpees. And my mom was like, oh, no, come on. Stephen has taken two hours to get him to bed. But uh, he was both my parents were were amazing parents. Um, I would say they weren't perfect, but they tried harder to live what they taught more than anyone I knew. And when they'd make mistakes, I admired that they'd own up to it and say, you know what? I lost my temper. This was my fault. It wasn't yours. And And um, they they asked forgiveness, just how we all need to, but they were wonderful models of trying to live what you teach.
0: One of the things I I started uh, right around the time when your father passed, I started a little bit before that, and I was in a conversation with either one of your brothers and him or somebody, I forget how how it went down, but I was a little skeptical of uh, kind of true believers drinking Kool-Aid in the seven habits or anything. So one of my questions was, how do you live this? And I swore to myself, if I heard anybody say Dr. Covey is like an A plus at living the habits every day, <laughs> uh, I was gonna quit just because yeah. it's not about that. It's about yeah. the spirit of trying to get better every day. And his answer almost did the opposite because he was so honest. He was like, you know, I'd give myself a B, B plus, B minus. I don't know. Days. <laughs> I'm like the honesty to me was so refreshing because that's yeah. what this is about. So you feel like. That's what you grew up with, basically. Yeah. It's not perfection expected, but just constantly striving to do better.
1: That's right. Um, yeah, to just keep trying and to admit mistakes. And and uh, he'd always say, "I have trouble trouble with habit five, listening. You know, I I want to give advice. I want to jump in and fix it. And so he he struggled to to practice what he preached as well, but he kept trying hard. And um, it was it, it was uh, a culture that you uh, that we had a lot of fun together but that if you made a mistake or messed up, you know, we under, you just started over and we, we did that often. So it was, it was a realistic household with nine kids. It was pretty wild and crazy. A lot of times just nine
0: kids. That's all you could see the three kids behind me. For those of you who are watching, I got my three sons behind me. I think that's (laughs) full. I can't imagine what nine feels like or looks like.
1: Well, I had six, and to have three more, and to have them... My, see, I was 22 when my youngest brother Joshua was born. So 22-year gap. My mom was doing kids for... <laughs> years and years. And um, anyway, but it was it was a great run. We always said to ourselves, I mean, people would give these great accolades to our father. And we always said if they only knew what he was like in person, you know, he's, he's, he's just he, his public image just paled to how we knew him in person. He really was a remarkable um, leader and great father to us all. So that's
0: awesome. Well, I'm excited uh, what that example has done, because the book that uh, is being released today is some, one that I think is perfectly timed and one that's going to change a lot of life. So, those of you who don't know what it is, live life in crescendo. Your most important work is always ahead of you. You co wrote this book with your father, right? Yes. In, in some sort of way. So, I mean, he passed away 10 years ago. So, what, what's the backstory of how this came about?
1: Yeah, it was 10 years ago this July when he passed away. But back in 2008, Um, my dad and I were talking, he was telling me all the projects he had going, and he had seven or eight different uh, books and different things he was involved in, and the one that intrigued me the most was this idea, live life in crescendo, because that was his personal mission statement the last 10 years of his life, and so um, we just talked about it, and he said, what about if you uh, help me out, I'll, you take my ideas, you interview me, you, and then you do the work. You find the stories and examples, make it practical, be kind of different than other books because it's mostly uh, stories about people who try to live in crescendo and, and those that don't that live, would try, would live in diminuendo, which is the opposite. And so uh, this was my assignment to um, to take the ideas and to go with it. And so I interviewed him and I got some things from other writings and, and we talked about it for years and uh, having six kids and all the pressures I've got that, that went with that and some responsibilities and some other jobs and things. I just didn't get it finished before he passed away. And so he'd always bug me and say, "How are you coming on the book?" I'm, I'm I'm doing it, Dad. When you you know, get at it already. (laughs) And so, uh, sadly, when he passed away, it wasn't finished. And but it kind of gave me the uh, momentum to be a faithful translator for him, and to jump ahead. And um, it's been ten years. It's taken ten years to since he passed uh, of really steady writing, off and on, uh, to get this finished. But what a great journey. And I felt uh, close to him as I was doing it. It was, it was a great thing for, for our continued relationship. It meant a lot to me.
0: That's awesome. So for, for those of us, I will say I am not the most musically inclined person. Yeah. I have an idea of what crescendo is. Can you just describe to us uh, what the, the power is in crescendo and what the meaning, what the symbolism is?
1: Right. Yeah, we like I said, we took this from his personal mission statement, but it's an, a musical analogy. Crescendo, if you see it on the page in, in um, on sheet music, it means that you grow in grandeur, in volume, and energy, that it keeps expanding, it keeps going, it doesn't stop. The sign of a crescendo is is outward. It starts with a, a pinpoint and then it goes out, and the, the lines never touch again. The opposite is true. Dominiendo. If on a musical score shows that it slows down, it lessens in value, in um, volume and power and energy. It kind of dwindles and eventually it literally comes to a stop. And so uh, we thought this was a great analogy that live your life in crescendo with the second part, the subtitle, your most important work is always ahead of you to have the mentality. And I'll talk more about the crescendo mentality of thinking. That, um your best work is still to come, and that you should continually keep learning and stretching and growing and not be satisfied where you are, or if you're starting to find yourself living in dominiendo, that you turn that around, and um, you you know you make it happen to to keep increasing in your life instead of diminishing
0: so Cynthia, as you're talking, you know, I, I think about looking at my own life or the people who are listening for them to be able to do the same thing. Uh, Just trying to figure out, am I living a life that's going towards diminuendo or is it one that's going out towards crescendo and the crescendo mentality that you're speaking of?
1: I think that's a great question. We need to constantly ask ourselves, am I living in crescendo or diminuendo? So um, a great example that I have um, recently read about is a man named Anthony Ray Hinton, who uh, lived in the South and was accused of killing two people well, he was in a lockdown facility, 15 miles away from the crimes, and this was during the 80s. And this um, this man was poor; he didn't have t- he didn't have the money for a good attorney, and they basically couldn't solve the crime, and they pinned this on him. Um, he lived in a racial biased uh, community, and um, they they just kind of nailed him. They just decided we're going to pin this on you. He knew he was innocent, and so he was so. Confident as he went to court that he would be found innocent, that he was just stunned when, when they all of a sudden he ends up on death row in Alabama. And so he um, decided he thought I I live my I live I've lived a good life I know I'm innocent and this happens to me. So he went into the jail cell. He threw his Bible under the under his bed and he literally shut down. He decided I'm not going to talk to one person. He didn't talk to the guards. The um, his inmates near him. He talked to no one except for friends that came to visit him for three years. He lived in Dominiendo. He shut down and just was so discouraged and depressed that he didn't offer anything. And so then uh, one night he was in his jail cell and he heard an inmate right next to him. This is on death row. And at two in the morning, he can hear this man just sobbing. And he said, something broke in me. And I I had the the desire to comfort another human being. And he decided to break his silence. And he asked him what was wrong. This man was desperately crying for help. And he told him that his mother had just died. He just received word. So he spent the rest of the night talking to this person he didn't know. who He's lived next to for three years, comforting him, listening to him tell about memories about his mom, and um, just, just letting him mourn. And from that day on, he chose to live in Crescendo. He, um, he knew he couldn't do anything about being on death row. He didn't have that option. He knew he was, he was innocent and he was in a bad situation. But he decided, I still have choices. He said, hope is a choice. Love is a choice. I, I, still, uh, I still have the choice to decide to, be, to give to other people or not, or to just shut down. And so he he chose to uh, be a friend to those around him. For the next 14 years, he became a beacon to the guards and to uh, the people on death row. He started; he got permission to start a book club, and to meet in the gym. He he became a light in their lives. And eventually, um, he got a hold of Brian Stevenson, um, who I don't know if you've seen Just Mercy or read that book, but he works for an advocate group that helps people that have been. Um wrongly convicted. And he after after almost um 30 years, he was finally released. He was found, um, uh, Brian Stevenson took it to the Supreme Court and they proved that he was totally innocent and he got released. And so when he came out of the doors, he said to his family and friends who were there, the sun does shine. And that's what he ended up writing a book that became a New York Times bestseller called The Sun Does Shine. And from now on, from that moment when he spoke to that inmate, he lived in Crescendo. He also, he's an advocate now and a community leader, a speaker for Equal Justice Initiative that's helping other people that have been unjustly accused and condemned. And he is a light in the world. He said, they took my, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, but one thing they couldn't take was my joy. And he consciously chose um, to live a life of Crescendo, where before he totally shut down, I would have had no influence. And now his circle of influence is enormous and it's spreading across America. So that was an incredible story to me.
0: So when you think about a story like that, what would you say are the ingredients or the basic foundation building blocks of a crescendo mentality like the story you just described?
1: Um, that's what we're proposing in this book to adopt a crescendo mentality, which is a new way of thinking, putting on a pair of glasses, a new pr- uh, paradigm to look th- at life in every age and stage that you're in. And it's, it's the idea that I, I, this is my situation that I'm in and looking at a problem it's thinking I'm going to, I'm going to make this better. I'm going to find a way to make it work. I'm going to start with myself kind of like your broadcast, um, Dustin, uh, to work from the inside out. Change starts with me. If, if you're an educator, how can, I, um, how can I improve myself, my classroom? How can I be more of a leader and a mentor to those that I lead in administration? How can I um, overcome a stagnant feeling in my, as, as a teacher or in the policies that I have? What can I do? How can I take responsibility for, for this problem and own it? And um, you know, increase in 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 becoming better, and increase in looking for solutions to my problem, rather than shutting down and and you know just giving into them, like like Ray did for the first three years.
0: So when you you were just talking about no matter uh, what point of life, because when I saw the title, I've dug into the book now. But when I saw the original titles, like thinking when living life in crescendo is more towards. The back half, not you know, middle front half. It wasn't about stages, and you just described right there that it's whatever stage of life you're in. And I know that your book breaks down a few different stages. Can you just do a quick right. high level overview of what are the stages that you address in your book?
1: Yes, it, it does apply to every age and stage of your life. The first one we talk about is a midlife stage. Um, a lot of times in their midlife stage, midlife is where people realize. Um, I'm not really where I wanted to be. I'm 50 years old and I thought I'd be successful and have a lot of money, or I thought I'd have influence, and maybe I'm not there, or um maybe I just went through a divorce, or maybe something happened that I feel stagnant. So that kind of deals with uh where you, you know, where you are compared to what you want to be. So what how are you going to choose? What are you what are you going to do about that? Are you going to take responsibility for it or are you going to choose um not to? live and crescendo and to uh, shut down and to be mediocre in your job, to uh, not put out a lot, not to expect a lot and to be stagnant. Um, that's just briefly. But the second one is the pinnacle of success. Uh, you may be very successful in your life. You may be, um, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates that, that have, you know, had set up a, that, you know, had a dynasty But what about their uh, post work after their uh, foundation that they're running? What about a Jimmy Carter um, that decides he was the president of the United States and yet his post presidency was much better than his presidency? Um, You know, what are you gonna contribute? This is where what uh, your most important work is still ahead of you. If you are successful and you do wanna step away from your profession, what are you gonna be about now? Are you still gonna contribute? Then the third one is life-changing setbacks. Uh, This would involve a person, think about Elizabeth Smart, Uh, the worst thing that could ever happen to you in your whole life. You get kidnapped at 14 and abused, and and, uh, you think that your life is over. But yet, her most important work was ahead of her, despite this horrible tragedy. She took this life setback, and she is an advocate for... um, for, for people that have been attacked and have been kidnapped, she has is a, started a foundation um, raising awareness for children who have had this type of thing happen to them. She's married and has three children. She lives in Crescendo, whereas she could have been a victim. She could have shut down and said, this horrible thing happened to me. I'll never be the same. And she chose not to do that. And then the last one is actually why my father st- uh, began this whole book. The second half of life. I think it bothered him that people started saying to him, Gosh, Steve, you're like 65 now. Are you going to be shutting down anytime or are you going to retire? In In our family, retire, the R word was a bad word to say in our home. You still, he would say, you might retire from a profession, but never retire from making meaningful contributions. And he felt like, why would I retire? I'm at the top of my game. I need to, I, you know, the seven habits wasn't the last great idea I had. I've got many other ideas that I'm hoping to bring out. I'm still looking forward to my most important work. And so that kind of bothered him enough that he, that's when he adopted that his uh, mission statement would be live life and crescendo. I still have more to accomplish. Why else do I get out of bed every day if it's not to learn and grow and contribute? So that's just kind of uh, really basic,
0: those four four places. One of the things that we had talked about, you reminded me, I knew this, but you reminded me, I think, would you say your dad was 49 years old when uh, the seven habits came out? Is that right? Did I get that timeline? Well, correct?
1: no, he was, um, let's see, he was 49 when he stepped away from, from teaching, he'd been teaching for Twenty something years, and he loved it. He w- he's would always consider himself a teacher first. Right. Um, that was his foundation of his of his career. But he made a kind of in the midlife stage that we're talking about. He kind of had, he kind of felt like I'm a little stagnant. At the university he was teaching at, he loved teaching, but he felt like I'm giving some of this material, which eventually became the Seven Habits, and he uh, published that I think when he was fifty one. And so he was giving this material to the students and they didn't have real life, um, you know, places to practice it. And so he felt like I wanna, He dabbled a little bit in consulting and thought, I wonder if I should take a leap right now at 49 and start my own business, Stephen, our our Covey and Associates. And that was a leap of faith. That was in a, a, a midlife kind of a situation that he thought, you know what, I feel like I've done what I can here and I've got to take this leap and I've got important things still to do. So he put his, his um, house and his cabin in Hawk and jumped into it with nine kids at home, many of them um, in college and all ages and um, took that chance to, to do that. And it was a, and it turned to be a great move for him, but it wasn't easy at first. And it wasn't didn't seem like the natural choice at first.
0: Yeah, I just, I think it's, it's so, I mean, I, I know plenty of people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who are kind of just stuck. I think I, you know, I'm just going through life, going through motions. And, you know, we think about your father and a lot of people in your life's careers of how oh, they were so successful. And you think, oh, I could never do that. And you start looking at where people are in their age. Like this, his life was way ahead of him. Your, your life is way ahead of you. And so uh, I'm particularly interested. I'm interested in all those stages, but one of the stages I mentioned in is kind of that mid- Yeah. Uh, Life struggle. I think you called it. Right. Right. How do you help people, again, recognize that and then start getting out of that to get that crescendo mentality you're talking about? You know, for um,
1: for educators, um, especially sometimes, I mean, they are I've always believed they're underpaid and underappreciated. They're in a tough situation. Most of them go into it because of love of learning, love of sharing their um, a mission or a purpose they have of helping, helping enrich children's lives. And so, to have a midlife in the middle of that to feel like, okay, I'm not appreciated, I'm not, um, I, I'm not valued as much. I thought I'd be, I thought that they would enjoy it more than they are. I, th- I thought I'd be making more of a difference than I am to examine where you are and think, okay, the crescendo mentality teaches me that I can do something about it. I can, I can become a better teacher, a better administrator. I can make small changes in my life that will ultimately impact others. There was a man named Brian Lestarge who taught junior high science, and he had a passion for science and wanted to light. The reason he went into it um, is because he wanted to light a fire in his students so that they would. he would want, wanted to get them past the theories and the rules of science and make it so fun for them that they would want to be in it and ignite a fire in them to become doctors and engineers and to, he had the long term in mind for them. So he created a fun class where he had experiments where they could do different combinations and blow things up, which you can imagine junior age, high age kids would love that. Every year he would, um, they would they shoot off bottle rockets on the back of their school to see who would go the furthest and they'd study the laws behind it but they got excited about that because of the activity that they did. Well, he came to a point in his life where he felt like, you know, I went into teaching for this reason but I don't know if I am making a difference. And he started to lose a little bit of sight of why he, why he went into it and even considered, although he would was the best teacher at the school, quitting and going into another profession. Well, about that time, a group of uh, parents nominated him for a prestigious education award, which he won. And the reason he won it is because they got testimonials from kids who had taken his class and had applied what they learned at a university. And we're now doing, like he said, becoming engineers and doctors and in the field of science. And him winning this award, his wife wrote a letter to the committee saying, totally renewed him. He said it, it brought back, this is why I went into teaching because um, I wanted to make a difference in their lives. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we don't have that feedback. And so it's good, to, the, the, mid, the midlife, um, There's two perspectives in the midlife we talk about in the book. And one is maybe you are more successful than you think you are like like Brian Lestarge or or even like um, um, George Bailey in A Wonderful Life. He was very successful, but he didn't think he was, but he had influenced and helped and contributed to the life of so many people in his town and that he didn't realize he was successful. He was measuring up by finances and by traveling and things. But the second perspective is if you are in a rut, if you are struggling and you're stagnant, take action and do something, you know, make it happen, make a change in your career, in your life, or just improve, use the crescendo mentality of thinking to see things clearly and decide I've got to, I've got to work from the inside out. I've got to improve my abilities in the classroom or with my teachers and my administrators so that I can pull myself out of this rut.
0: I... So I think what we have seen in the last decade that I've been here is there's a lot of folks who just get stuck in the rut. Because like you said, they are, a lot of them might be underpaid and underappreciated and they have given their you know, blood, sweat and tears to be able to serve kids or serve their schools and they're just burned out. And I, I feel like helping people have clarity of mission and purpose has been yeah. one of the biggest things, the inside out thing you just talked about has been one of the biggest things someone can do to help them figure out if they're in the right space. And if they are, and I think most of them actually are, it's reminding them why they're there so they can wake up every day to make that impact and not get sidetracked by the nonsense that they've been experiencing, uh, likely with other adults or culture issues, right? That's exactly
1: right. Um, you've got to have a, a purpose of why you're what you're about. My dad always liked to quote his grandfather who said, life is a mission, not a career. Mm. You choose different careers, but your whole life, Find out what you feel your unique mission is to serve. Viktor Frankl taught that you don't um, invent your missions, you detect them. And so do what it takes to, uh, with a crescendo mentality to detect, what is my mission about? What what am I about? What contributions do I want to make in my field? And um, just go about creating them. Um, uh, my dad always loved to quote Peter Drucker, who said, the best way to predict your future is to create it. And so a lot of this is, um, you know, the crescendo mentality of thinking in terms of how can I improve and get better? What can I, how can I take action for myself? My father always called it resourcefulness and initiative, R&I. Whenever at home, we would like make an excuse. Oh, my teacher is so, so dumb. I'm failing math. You know, you're, you're, you're failing math, whose fault is that? Well, my teacher, he's an idiot. He doesn't give me the good assignments. He's so boring. You know, RNI, resourceful initiative, take responsibility for yourself. It's up to you. It's not your teacher's fault. Well, he's really bad, dad. Well, you know, you can deal with that at another level later, but you've got to pass this class. So right. shape up and do what it takes to do it. We could never complain to him about our circumstances. Uh, luckily, my mom balanced us out and we her, them out and we could complain to her. She would massage our hearts and make us feel better and say, that dumb teacher, I'm gonna go talk to him. what What is he doing? Doesn't he know that you're one of the best teach students in the class? But my dad wouldn't let us take uh, shift the responsibility. He'd say, you know whether you pass or not is not up to the teacher. It's what you do next.
0: r and I, I love that. Uh, you yeah. You brought up a question that I have for you. Or it could be, you know, answer what your dad would think too. But when you talk about a mission statement, so there could be people who are listening, who are thinking, I have a mission statement and I'm still stuck. Do you have any advice for how often you should revisit that? How often you should amend that, change it, rethink it? Uh, Or is it something that you just continue to use as a true north and just think about your actions if you're getting closer to that or not?
1: You know, I, I, I like to, you know, sharpen the saw one of the one of the seven habits I like to renew all the time. I think that you constantly have got to revisit your mission statement and maybe change it mm. and maybe um, just practically think of, OK, here's my mission statement. But what am I doing? Where am I living in crescendo right now or dominiendo? What, how am I contributing to this? Um, the, a good question is saying, what happens to a person, maybe an educator or a person in business or whatever, who starts living a life in dominiendo? What are the fruits of that? And mm. that is, um, you, can, you can see, uh, very, putting out very little. We all know people, when you go to a job or you go to a business and you can see they hate their job and they are stagnant and they are not, they're not making an effort. So the, those signs that you could maybe see in your own life has got to promote some change within and think, you know, living in crescendo means that I improve and I learn and I, I start again. Uh, second chances are a big part of this book and about um, reinventing yourself. I I, I I have a great story in here about a man at 47 who he started a business when he was in his um, mid-20s and by the time he uh, 20 years later his business partners had taken over the business and pushed him out and he was he didn't have a business so at 47 he's unemployed with debt and doesn't know what he's going to do and he decides you know what I'm going to reinvent myself like we're talking about I'm going to have a new mission statement he'd always wanted to be a lawyer he decided at 47 to go to law school he was the oldest one in the in the room in the class at 47, and people were joking about him being there, and he tells the story, it just paints a picture of pulling into a parking lot at five in the morning when it's pitch black, it's the middle of winter, it's it's dark and cold, and he feels gloom and doom come over him and depression, and he thinks, what have I done? How can I do this? I'm in law school, I've got four kids, I haven't made any money, I've got years ahead of me. And what am I really doing? And he he decided no matter what, I'm gonna dig down deep. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep thinking of the positive. I'm thinking of the end in mind, which is law school. I mean, graduating from law school and becoming a lawyer and starting my own firm. And so he pushed those negative feelings aside and he just dug down deep. And within two and a half years, he had graduated. He was he was almost 50 when he set up his own law firm in a new career, a new profession. And within three or four years, he had more work than he could handle. And so I don't know, he reinvented himself. He, he, he had to kind of recreate another mission. And a lot of people have to do that. And my dad basically did that when he left the university and decided to take a chance on becoming an author and a full time consultant. And it's a gamble. Maybe some will work, maybe some won't. But you'll never know if you don't try.
0: So true. So as you were talking, one of the um, stages is, you know, you you mentioned was the second half of life. And I think about my dad, who I'm really close with, uh, and, you know, he's very vulnerable with me. So he talks to me, like when he retired, he talks to me about how he feels, right? Some days he feels really happy and successful, Bill, some days it's empty and there's nothing there and you're trying to figure it out what advice do you give or do you have for folks uh whether they're listening and they are in that stage or they have close family or friends in that stage or approaching that stage to really get the most out of the second half of life
1: um we propose in this book that that's the most that you're in the best position ever to make a contribution we talk about life is about contribution not accumulation So the second half of life at the very end, say that like if your father isn't working anymore, doesn't have a profession. He's in a perfect position. Think of all the wisdom he has and the experience he has, the connections he has, the abilities to communicate and to make things happen that he's learned his whole life. Who could he mentor right now? Who could he look around in your family and see who's struggling? Who could he help in the community? He's in a perfect position. He's got time. He probably has more money than he did when he was when he was younger. He's got abilities that he didn't have. It's a perfect situation to think, my most important work is still ahead of me. What cause or what important thing am I going to be about in the next 10 to 15 years? Rather than thinking, you know what, uh, looking in the rearview mirror. My father would always say, don't look in the rearview mirror at what you've done. Don't look back at your accomplishments. Look ahead. If you were driving in a car and trying to get to the store, if you kept looking in your rearview mirror the whole time, you'd end up in a ditch. And so um, someone like your father and other people that are facing, okay, I just ended my professional career. What do I do now? The crescendo mentality teaches your most important work is ahead of you. It's up to you to figure out where you're going to put that passion and where you see needs in your community and what you're going to contribute to. Because this is the greatest time to make a contribution. You have more skills and more abilities than you ever had in your life. It's an exciting time.
0: That's awesome. As you're talking, I went back. I like so my my dad's been taking those kind of steps, and I think he's ended kind of what you're talking about is how do I make a difference by mentoring and loving and uh, serving others around me. And then it went into oh man, school starting. You know, my uh, uh, son's just got back to school recently, and I'm thinking through. My friends who are principals or superintendents or even teachers—if I'm trying—if let's say if I'm a principal or you know a district official and I'm in charge of district culture, school culture, how can I take this crescendo mentality and start building a culture around it, or you know how do I how do I help my people? live that way in a way that feels authentic to them. Cause I like it. I have actually, you have multiple stages. So I want to help them. Like, I w- want to see my staff understand what stage they are in right? and then live with this crescendo mentality. What are, what are some ways they could start doing that with them?
1: Increase your circle of influence by just starting with yourself and anyone you have contact with, you practice these new principles that you mm-hmm. want to get out. If you're an administrator, you want to create a school that uh, has great teachers, has high standards, teach, teaches good values about education. You start with yourself, and then you affect those around you. Your circle of influence you may think is small. Maybe you're not um, an administrator. Maybe you're just you're maybe you're a teacher, or maybe you're only dealing with a few people. But it's it, it been found that a domino effect can be created with um, one person choosing to live a certain way and influence others influencing others in the same way you think of the a power of a mentor um, and how like someone like a John Wooden how he you know he had a pinnacle of success he was considered maybe the greatest basketball coach of all time one of them but yet his post basketball years were filled with mentoring one person at a time I mean he was in contact um, with his past players constantly. He, he taught still. He said his greatest, his greatest love and his greatest contribution in his life was not about basketball. It was about mentoring. So you think, who can I, who can I um, affect around me? Just start with yourself and those that you work with. And pretty soon your circle of influence will expand and become kind of a domino effect to those who are within your circle of influence. And then you've just increased it. Then it grows bigger. I'm thinking of a, of um william henley um, who wrote he he was he was um, in this happened in england he was uh, his father passed away and he his mother had five or six children and they were very poor and um, he he needed encouragement and kindness from his teacher more than anything and this is he found a professor that that gave this to him and helped him uh, he lit a fire of a love for poetry within him and he affirmed him and he mentored him and it meant the world to him. He didn't have anyone who uh, saw him in this light and he uh, started writing poetry. Well, eventually, um, years later, he wrote Invictus, that beautiful poem that uh, Nelson Mandela uh, referred to all the time in those 27 years in in on Robben Island in South Africa that he um, would would talk about that I have it it basically the poem just says I'm the master of my fate I'm the captain of my soul and the master of my fate he used this to inspire himself and then his influence spread Mandela's influence spread to the other inmates who would come to him for advice and to even the guards who he initially hated when he came in he worked talk about a person that worked from the inside out he first changed himself and then was able to influence others. So his circle of influence grew grew to when he is released at 71. Talk about his second half of life. At 71, he walks through the gates and and as as a free man. And most people would think he's 71. It's too bad his whole life was wasted in prison. What can he do? But he felt like his life was just beginning anew. Four years later, he's elected um, the president of South Africa and ending apartheid. And his, his circle of influence has increased to include the whole world. But uh, Henley's poem years ago, with the domino effect, the small circle of influence that he had uh, influenced Mandela, who olf- ultimately influenced the whole world.
0: The last 10 years of your life, or 10 years or more, that you've worked on this book, I mean, you are incredibly passionate and connected to this work. I'm curious, what do you say to someone who's trying to peek over the fence to decide if they should read this? Who's this for? Make the plea. Because I just, I love when I hear from authors who have spent a year to, in your case, 10 or more years (laughs) on this content, like it's in your heart. And so what is it that you want people to understand as they think about whether they pick it up or not?
1: I do feel passionate about this material, Dustin, because I feel like, um, I believe as my dad did, that it can give hope and encouragement to anyone in any stage of life, wherever they're at, if they're feeling stagnant, if they're feeling like, I've done it all, you know, I'm already successful, what else do I need to do? They feel like I've had this horrible thing happen to me, um, my personal life's a mess, or I, I, I don't know what to do next, I have had a huge setback, or if you're in an older stage of life, I truly believe that um, the crescendo mentality way of thinking, this perspective, that you, that you the glasses that you put on can change everything. And that truly believing and acting upon it, like you say, you can't just think it. You've got to act on it. You've got to use your R&I, that your most important work is still ahead. It, it may not be, you may have done greater things in your life before this, but still, this is your most important work because it is ahead of you. You don't want to keep looking in the rearview mirror at what you did. You want to. You want to contribute. Life is about contribution, and at any age and stage, I truly believe that a person can take hold of their life and choose the crescendo mentality and find much more uh, happiness and meaning in their life and purpose than they had before. The opposite is to live in diminendo, and we know where that ends up.
0: Yeah, I love as you're talking. I know something may not be a. a direct analogy, but I'm thinking about talking to my sons about how, you know, you're never as great as your past or as bad as you think your past is. And so you got to keep (laughs) your eyes ahead and keep it moving about what's next. And so I think to your point, when I first heard, I said this earlier, but when I first heard the title, I was thinking, Oh, my dad will love this book or my mom, or, you know, that people will love this book, not, Oh, this will be perfect for me. After reading it, I'm thinking, how can I take these lessons and help my eight-year-old, six-year-old and two-year-old start having some of that mentality, or at least building it into them at this stage of life so that they are constantly thinking that way.
1: That's, that's the greatest point I think you've made is you can't wait to, to have this mentality. You have to start where you are now. Right. You have to start at any age, and even your young kids. You're thinking, "What's ahead of me? What What do I want to accomplish? What uh, How am I going to look at my life in terms of the crescendo sign that it, I keep learning and growing and contributing? And so, um, I think that's a great point that at, at any age and stage that you can you can live this, but it's important to not wait to do it. You all of a sudden, the person. I mean, it, it, you still could apply it. But the person that uh, wakes up at when they're seventy and they've finished their career and thinks, uh, "Shoot, you know, what what do I do now?" It, the, you're more prepared if you think to yourself, "This is a this is a journey that I'm on," and um, I know that I had this setback. Maybe I, I became I was bankrupt. Maybe I got divorced, and I had something. I have I developed a terrible uh, health condition. But stepping from right now, how am I going to live? And what, how can I direct my energies? Kind of like what Michael J. Fox did when he found out that he had Parkinson's. At first, he drank himself into oblivion. And then he decided, this isn't going to help. The only choice I have, I mean, I have all the choices in the world. The only choice I don't have is whether or not I have Parkinson's. I can control everything else is a choice of mine. And so he learned more about his um, disease, which helped him feel better. He ate better. He exercised. He did things. He got educated. And then he, um, he became, I mean, people would say, what a tragedy. He was a famous actor. And then, you know, he's had this happen. But actually, his greatest roles have been in Parkinson's. His most important work was ahead of him. He didn't know it as an actor, but now he's become the face of Parkinson's. He nope. testified in front of the Senate committee without taking medication for Parkinson's so they could see what it was like, how desperately these people needed help to be able to have this medication. And he did that to expose what Parkinson's is all about. And then he's continued in crescendo living like that uh, all these years and he has raised, they just said $1 billion for Parkinson's. So tell me that his greatest work wasn't just back to the future. I mean, his, <laughs> you know, his greatest work is, is ahead of him and still is. And well, even though it's hard, he writes, he's written a lot of books about about making that choice and about living your life with optimism, despite what you've gone through or what's happened to you. It's a great example.
0: I know you didn't mean to help the Odom household out tonight, but uh, (laughs) my kids just finally watched Back to the Future trilogy with me. And so uh, they know who Marty McFly is. And (laughs) this would be a great conversation to have with them because they're starting to understand, you know, that people are actors who play roles. And, uh, so thank you, I guess I will say, uh, that's going to be our dinner <laughs> conversation, uh, this yeah. evening. So I appreciate it. So real quickly, we end with the same questions. Uh, first question is what's a habit or discipline that you utilize on a daily basis or a weekly basis that helps you become the best version of yourself?
1: Um, you know, I think I would say, um, well, I've, I've been using begin with the end in mind for 10 years for this book. I mean, there were many nights I sat here till two in the morning in tears, sometimes thinking, what am I doing? You know, this is, is this ever going to get published? I mean, I, you know, I, this is hard and I had a lot of setbacks and, and, um, you know, I just had to, I had the end in mind. No, this is what my father and I agreed on. This is his last big idea. I want to bring it out. He felt as passionate about it as he did seven habits. He felt like he could make a difference in people's lives in terms of, Finding meaning and purpose in their lives and making contributions to others. So I'm going to stick with it, even though it wasn't it wasn't easy. So I think I've been practicing, trying to practice, begin with the end in mind. But I think my favorite habit, um, and there's lots of other habits, but I'm just choosing another one of his, and that is sharpen the saw. I love more than anything to um, go for a run or to. exercise, to go out in nature, to find myself is what I call it and just kind of renew and think about, you know, you think about your mission statement, you think about your most important roles, talk about in the midlife stage, being successful is a different kind of definition and how we're defining it here to be successful, you are successful in your most important roles in life. And that's what that's where true success really is found. So I would probably renew those in my mind and renew my body and spirit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm curious, uh, for those of you who aren't watching right now, uh, behind you, you've got several hundred books and anybody that has a ladder to get to the other books that I can't see (laughs) uh, loves to read. And so my question for you, and I won't make you limit it to just one since you have a thousand behind you, uh, what is a book that you've either read over your lifetime or recently that you think other folks should really check out besides the obvious, which is your own that is out now.
1: Yeah, that's great. I'm not going to plug my own again. <laughs> um, you know, I told you about the sun does shine, a great example from, uh, Anthony Ray Hinton. It's yeah. become a New York best time seller that you think you've got a hard and bad life. You read about what happened to this man for, um, almost 30 years, uh, falsely imprisoned and how he, um, conquered that through his who basically through his crescendo mentality outlook and changed his his life um and what he's contributing now another one is melinda gates <clears throat> book the moment of lift she she um for being a billionaire at, um she is incredible she would she went to these places um villages in in africa and in all across the world in underprivileged areas to figure out how they could help with poverty, people that are immersed in deep poverty. And she was asking the hard questions and she lived among the people and got into the culture. And I, I know that she and Bill are divorced now, but she they both are committed to their foundation, which has saved millions of lives through vaccinations and through other things. And Melinda's talks, her main premise of the book is that um, it's, it's how if you lift women in, in the culture of people that are have great poverty that you can lift a whole village if you can change the if you can understand and get to to empower a woman in in the different cultures that they lived in it can affect the whole community it's very inspiring I loved it.
0: That's great. Well, I appreciate it. And so other question, Uh, you said you go out for a run. So I'm curious while you're running. Actually, I have to, I
1: got to correct myself. I I had knees, I had double knee surgery. (laughs) See, I had to live in crescendo um, to do that. I had double knee replacement and I did it at the same time because I had to be efficient. I didn't have time. Well, I was writing my book to do one after another. So (laughs) I had two knee replacements. So I go for a walk.
0: Hey, that's okay. My, we'll walk. my
1: headphone and listen to books. So that's what I, like. I want to
0: know. So what what's on your playlist when you now walk, but uh, anybody who has double knee replacements was likely a runner for some time. So we'll just <laughs> with that, but you've earned your mileage. So I can call you a runner still, but while you're walking, if you want me to be uh, intellectually honest, what's on your playlist? What kind of music, what kind of artists, <laughs> what songs, what is it? My, well,
1: you're, you know, I love Ed Sheeran. <laughs> I lived in Ireland so for five years. <laughs> really? For five years of my life. So he's my top. I love Ed Sheeran music. I'm also uh, traditional. I love all the musicals. I love um, I love, you know, Les Mis and fandom and and um, Dear Evan Hansen, Hamilton. I mean, I love listening to any musical. Um, I also love my brother loves Coldplay. Stephen loves Coldplay. I love Coldplay too. (laughs) But I really am a big fan of Ed Sheeran and country music. Um, Tim McGraw. Garth Brooks, I, I love all that music, <laughs> kind of that's, sappy music, but it feel good kind of music that can really motivate you when you're out walking.
0: That's <laughs> true, You uh, so Phantom of the Opera was one that uh, my stepmom and I used to sing all the time, which I loved, and then my wife has all of our boys rocking out the country on a regular basis, so. That's great, uh, and it's,
1: it's a great thing to do when you're doing dishes, yeah. when you're just all together. <laughs> when you're doing a task, you're doing something that's not so fun, if you start role playing, going through the different uh, voices, and like in like in um, in Les Mis or in some of those dramatic ones, it's it's really fun. I love that.
0: <laughs> I love that idea. My, my so... family,
1: my family does that back and forth. One will be Javert, one will be, you know, Jean Valjean, and we have Cosette come in, and they just, you know, we we get into we get into different. Uh, roles in singing Les Mis, especially.
0: <laughs> and before you know it, you've cleaned up dinner from, done, I guess it's probably dishes. at least six kids. So you probably got some <laughs> spouses and grandkids in there. So it could be like 30 some odd people, right?
1: That's right. My, my yeah. dad invented what we call the 10, what he called the 10 minute program. Everybody works hard for 10 minutes mm. and to do the dishes to clean up. And you'd be surprised if you're, if you've got music on and you're all working, you're all buy into something and you divide up the task, you can get it done in 10 to 15 minutes and, awesome. and still have fun too, not hate your life.
0: I will <laughs> steal that. Uh, thank you so much. So yeah. last question before we let you go, cause we're about at the top of the hour, would be uh, what is, you know, you're, you're surrounded by a lot of great thought leaders. You're surrounded by a lot of influential people. Um, you're a reader uh, as it shows with your library behind you. What's the best piece of advice you've been exposed to lately, whether it's a book Social media, listening to someone speak, uh, TED Talk, whatever that you just can't get off your mind, and you want to share with people in in regards to making change in their life or impact on the people's lives around them.
1: You know, um, I've got to go back to uh, believing that um, you can live your life a crescendo in any situation that you're at. Um, I I just have this rehearsing in my mind because it's been I've been doing it for so many years, ten years of of working on it that I, I really believe it because it can make it such a, a change in your life that you feel like I have hope. I, I can, you know, yesterday was awful, but the next, the next couple of years, the next couple of months, I'm going to make changes. Um, let's see. I, have been reading, um, I've been reading things from the essentialist, um, it, Greg McKeown. And I, I love his idea that do what's essential, do, um you know there's so many pressures that are coming at us do what matters most do what's only essential cut everything else out um and from your life and you'll be so much you'll be so much happier if you can say no to the unimportant Mm. um and you know as Goethe says the things that matter most must never be at the mercy of things that matter least and that sometimes you'll spend a lot of time doing things that you think to yourself what am I doing? I'm wasting time on social media. Or what am I spending time uh, doing right now? What really matters? And um, Greg's Greg's book about uh, living an essential life has really resonated a chord uh, within me.
0: That's awesome. Well, it. I'm excited for folks around me to check out your book now that it's available. Uh, for those of you, again, I want to remind you, Live Life and Crescendo, your most important work is always ahead of you. Uh, I, I can now say, as I've been able to have a sneak preview, uh, it's life-changing work, and I think everyone should dive into it. Cynthia, thank you so much for making time to be with us today. I wish you nothing but the best, and I look forward to seeing what kind of impact this makes on people's lives.
1: Thanks so much, Dustin, for having me. I've enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate it. Yeah, you it.
0: as well. Thank you. Thank you. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.